Knowledge is the key. CannabisRadio.com is here to keep you in the know on Just Say No. Did you know there are over 100 medical conditions that can benefit from cannabis therapy? Just Say No talks to patients who have used cannabis to treat their medical symptoms and create a better quality of life. Each week, we will tackle a chronic condition by talking to patients, doctors, and researchers with the goal to helping you live, learn, and thrive. Just say yes to Just Say No. Now here is your host, Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com, and welcome to Just Say No. Each week here on Just Say No, we evaluate, investigate, give a thorough look at all the various diseases we think cannabis therapy can help. Today on our show, we're very excited to have Dr. David Cassaret. Dr. Cassaret is a physician and professor at the Perlman School of Medicine in Pennsylvania. He is also the author of the new book, Stoned. Hello, and thanks for joining us, Dr. Cassaret. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Yeah, the book is incredible. In the book, I, you know, you started out as kind of a, more than a skeptic, I'd say. You kind of thought of medical marijuana as kind of a joke. What got you into researching this book, and why did you go down the medical marijuana? Sure, and I should say, just by way of full disclosure, I, I, you're right. I thought of medical marijuana as a, a joke before I started this, but I don't think I was that unique. I mean, I bet if you took a poll of a lot of physicians a year and a half ago, maybe even still now, I think a lot of people would have agreed with me. But I'm a palliative care physician. I take care of patients near the end of life. And a patient was referred to me, a retired English professor, who had advanced pancreatic cancer, was having a variety of symptoms, nausea, vomiting, pain. And in the course of my conversation with her, she asked me whether I thought medical marijuana might help her. And I told her it's, it's not legal in the state in which I practice. I told her it's an illegal drug, it's addictive, and then it has no medical value whatsoever because that's what I thought at the time. And she reached into her handbag and pulled out a couple of articles, randomized control trials of studies of smoked and vaporized marijuana for a variety of symptoms, including, including pain like hers. And she showed me those articles and said, well, you know, what do you think about these? Doctor, there's no such thing as, as a good evidence. And in that moment, I had to realize that the patient of mine knew more about the science of medical marijuana than I did. So I promised her I'd, I'd do some looking, some research, and wound up talking to patients, researchers, reading the literature. And I realized that, you know, if it's a palliative care doc, I didn't know what medical marijuana could do. Then probably a lot of other people didn't know either. And it was worth exploring for a book to share whatever was out there to learn. Yeah, and how do you think this book is being received now that you've written it? And I just, I, I'm curious about what other doctors think of your research. You know, I'm, say I'm less sure about what other doctors think. In general, if I had to summarize, and this is, this is a pretty large leap, I think a lot of doctors are seeing medical marijuana legalization coming down the pike. They're seeing yeah. more requests from patients. And I think they want some, at least overall sense of how they should respond. Because clearly, as it was 15 years ago, it's, it's no longer appropriate just to, to give the answer that I did to my patient and say, ah, it's illegal, because it's not. Nor is it appropriate to say, what well, it doesn't work, because it does or it can. So I think a lot of physicians are, at least the well-meaning ones, are looking for some guidance to be able to give their patients. And you know, some of the feedback I've heard from physicians about stone has been positive for exactly that reason. 
that they read it and they learned things they didn't know. The other thing I've heard from them, which really is gratifying to me because it was exactly what I had hoped to do, was mm-hmm. that it was balanced. And I've gotten compliments for pointing out that it has some benefits, but it's not a one drug. It has some risks, but those risks aren't really overwhelming. And I've heard that from other patients too. So I think some physicians out there really want to give their patients good advice and hopefully there'll be other sources of advice coming down the pike that will help them do that. Yeah, I can attest that it is very well balanced and it's a pretty funny read too. You have a lot of kind of anecdotes in there that are pretty interesting. <laughs> do you think you could have written this book five years ago? Well, I could have written it, sure. Would yeah. a major publisher, Penguin Random House, have wanted to publish it? <laughs> I think that's that's really the question. Yes, I mean, I think it was writable, and certainly there have been plenty of other books about medical marijuana that have been published. I think to get a major publisher's interest, though, it really helped to have this groundswell of, of legalization moving forward. I think that, that really helped. And do you think, uh, this is a large question, but it, your book kind of tries to answer this question, but does marijuana work? <laughs> well, it, it kind of depends on, on what you mean by work. It's like any yeah. other medication. You know, I think opioids like morphine for pain or chemotherapy drugs for cancer, they work if you use them in the right way for the right reason at the right time and in the right dose. And the analogy I use in the book is, well, does a hammer work? Well, yeah, if you want to pound a nail, if you want to fix a frozen iPhone, it's probably not your tool of choice. <laughs> right. So I think medical marijuana does work for some indications. I think, at least in my reading of literature, that the data are pretty good for neuropathic pain, so pain due to nerve damage, also related muscle spasms, spasticity in conditions like multiple sclerosis. There's probably good data, for me at least, that the cannabinoids in marijuana work for uh, nausea. Um, and then also some, some evidence to support the use of marijuana in the loss of appetite of chronic illnesses like cancer or AIDS, probably not weight gain, but probably improved appetite. So, you know, for those things, the evidence isn't perfect, but the evidence for me at least is probably good enough to recommend it to patients. Speaking of evidence, you uh, traveled to Israel and interviewed a few patients and doctors over here, of course, it's a schedule one drug, so we don't have much research. Why do you think most of the research is coming out of Israel? Um, well, I think um, Raphael Meshulam, who's widely regarded as the, the grandfather of medical marijuana science, deserves a lot of the credit for that, at least in part because he's not a physician, he's a biochemist, and his approach to marijuana research has always been that of a biochemist. He's not interested so much in whether it's useful for nausea or loss of appetite, although he's clearly interested in those things. But he was really interested, this is going way back to the 50s and 60s, he was really interested in the molecular structure of the cannabinoids in marijuana, THC, CBD, and others, was really interested in their molecular structure and how they bind to receptors and how those receptors work and what they do. And so he really, I think, it's certainly safe to say that he was a leading force in advancing the science of medical marijuana, but he really created that science, at least at a a basic science level. And he really made it okay, I think, for many scientists, both in Israel and, and elsewhere in the world, although more slowly in the U.S., to take that on not just as a a scientific problem that's worth solving, but as a career, as a field. He really created that that field of cannabinoid research, cannabinoid receptors, and molecular structure. He made that field exist, and he made it okay for for talented researchers to go into. I'm curious over there, is it does the culture accept it? Is it something that you still need to get a medical recommendation for, but is that from your primary care physician? 
Yeah, are I, people using it over there? I don't want to misspeak because the, the primary reason I, I went over there was to meet with Dr. Mishulam and sure. uh, to meet with a filmmaker named Zach Klein, who has been a marijuana advocate there for, for a long time. So my impression is that, yes, it is legal. You can get it. I believe you need a recommendation, although don't quote me on that. Okay. In terms of its overall acceptance, I'm not really sure. It's certainly, I think, looked on with mixed feelings, meaning that the fact that Rafael Mishulam is, is located in, in Jerusalem has, has not, not managed to, to totally change the culture. Zach Klein, the filmmaker, actually told me a great story, which I relate in the book, when his mother was diagnosed with advanced cancer, he talked to her about potentially using medical marijuana to help treat some of her symptoms. And she was this is way back in the 80s with Ronald Reagan's war on drugs. And she was, was scared to use it because she was mm-hmm. afraid of side effects and, and addiction. Granted, that was 20 plus years ago, 30 years ago now, I guess. But at least back then, and I think to some degree now, not unique to Israel, but everywhere, I think there's there's certainly a lot of stigma and concern about addiction and risks that still attaches to marijuana, no matter how much the, the culture has changed. So in your book, you, you tell a story about tweaking your back, I think lifting a canoe, and then you tried to treat it by smoking a few joints, I think, some pretty heavy ones. Was that the first time you'd ever tried cannabis? <laughs> No, no, you can't really get okay. through high school and college these <laughs> days without without an exposure. But I will say that although I wasn't a neophyte, I certainly wasn't a professional grade user. And the time since I had used, I had at least eight or going back to residency. Um, not really sure, but this is not something that I would use either before or since on a daily or even weekly basis, which is another way of saying I really didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) I think a little bit more experience and a little bit more caution would have avoided some of the more impressive side effects that that I enjoyed for a couple of hours after overtoking that that joint. Yeah, I think we run a site over here called mjwellness.com and probably 50% of the emails I get in are people concerned about getting too high. And, you know, your first experience or, you know, coming back to it after a long time, smoking really anything, even just a couple puffs seems to get people really, really high. And I'm sure that's a concern for a lot of the patients looking into, you know, using marijuana as therapy. It is. And, you know, honestly, that the woman I told you about who first asked me about medical marijuana, that was that was a concern with her. You know, a couple things it's worth noting. One is that unlike a lot of the other drugs that we use that are legally prescribed, like Ativan or morphine, you can't fatally overdose on marijuana. That doesn't mean an overdose is necessarily a pleasant experience. You can certainly get anxiety, paranoia, agitation and confusion, sometimes rarely hallucinations, which I had the benefit of experiencing, but you're not, you're not going to die because of it. And I think that's, that's important. But many of my patients don't want that loss of control. But still, you know, that's something that at least some guidance and counseling, Zach Klein, the, the Israeli filmmaker I mentioned before, was actually a volunteer marijuana educator. So for people who were starting medical marijuana for the first time, he was assigned to them to help them understand how to smoke or how to use edibles and marijuana and other forms to give them advice about side effects, how to use, how much to use. Despite the fact I was writing a book on the subject, really could have used a, an educator on that back porch with me that afternoon. That would have been really helpful. I'm sure. Would you, do you think you'll use marijuana again for your back pain? Well, let's hope that back pain doesn't come back to haunt me again. <laughs> Knock on wood, it's been a year and a half, two years now, and I'm, I'm doing okay. 
I would certainly think about it. Although, you know, it's, it's not legal in, in Pennsylvania yet. So yeah. that would certainly make me think twice. Honestly, I think for me, it was useful. The main reason I told that story was that it was a, a great entree to me and, and a good stepping off point to to explain to readers both the fact that you can't fatally overdose. So it was yeah. kind of a weird experience, but I'm still here. Whereas sometimes you have a, a weird overdose experience with opioids, you're, you're no longer here. Those can be fatal and, and often are. But also as a jumping off point to talk about the science of, of testing. That's a big argument for me for legalization, being able to know what the concentration of THC is in particular in marijuana you're, you're smoking or or vaporizing or, or eating so you know how much of a, a dose is, is likely to be effective. All right, we need to take a break, but when we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. David Cassaret, author of the new book, Stone. We will be right back once you get to know our sponsors. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's orders. Less heat, <laughs> more flavor. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Just Say No, spelled K-N-O-W, is back with more conversation about curing and healing with cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Ryan Hunt from NJWellness.com, and let's continue our conversation with Dr. David Cassaret. 
Speaking of THC, you have an interesting piece in your book where you compare THC to Don Quixote and the CBD being Sancho Panza. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that? You talk a lot about CBD, but CBD is kind of, or THC is kind of this crazy guy who's going all over the place, and CBD is kind of helping him focus. Is that right? Yeah, I'm still not entirely sure that that analogy works, but but it certainly oh, I helps think it does. to yeah, get a I handle like on, right? Sure, sure, um, yeah. THC is the cannabinoid that gets all the attention. I mean, it's what makes us feel high and goofy. It's what can cause rarely hallucinations. And honestly, it's the, the cannabinoid that's gotten studied a lot. You know, it was the, the first cannabinoid to be synthesized, described, have its receptors analyzed. It's the cannabinoid that really gets, gets all the attention. It's the, the popular, interesting one. But I think a lot of researchers uh, are beginning to realize and have taught me that CBD, although it's the, the quiet half of that couple, doesn't cause euphoria, doesn't cause hallucinations, really doesn't have any psychoactive effects that we know of, even very, very large doses of five, 600 milligrams, may have other effects that may turn out to be as important. Barth Wilsey, who is an anesthesiologist at UC Davis in California, has gotten really interested in the role that CBD might have in treating neuropathic pain, so pain that's due to, to nerve damage which appears in sometimes in HIV, after chemotherapy with cancer, diabetes, sometimes with neurodegenerative disorders or autoimmune disorders. Common, really hard to treat, doesn't respond well to opioids. But he's found that increasing concentrations of CBD in smoked marijuana and sometimes even decreasing concentrations of THC can give a fair amount of relief. He's actually hopeful that he could test a strain of marijuana that has high concentrations of CBD, but really no significant concentrations of THC, which wouldn't make you feel high. It wouldn't impair your ability to work or function or drive, but would be very effective in, in relieving neuropathic pain. So it may be that CBD has a lot more importance than we've given it credit for in the past. Yeah, I know here we talk about kind of the entourage effect between THC and CBD and whether, I don't know, pure CBD from hemp is as effective as CBD from a THC-containing marijuana plant. And jury seems to be kind of out on that. But it seems like, especially with kids with Dravet syndrome and CBD, seems to help even more than THC. Is that right? At least that's, that's the best guess, as near as I can tell. So I, I spoke with Orrin Davinsky, who's doing, as far as I know, the only clinical trial that's going on right now in the U.S. I think CBD is more likely to be effective. He thinks that the absence of psychoactive effects, especially in young kids, is, is probably a good thing. Yeah, I think we'd all agree on that. <laughs> Although I have heard from parents, you know, the amount of drugs they're taking, you're less drugged with a little bit of THC than you are with all the drugs that you're taking to control seizures, you know. Oh, absolutely. There's one great survey. I think it was a, an online survey I mentioned in, in the book in Stone that on average parents of kids with Dravet syndrome had tried an average of something like 11 or 12 medications for them, and that's the average. So there are plenty of parents whose kids had tried more drugs than that. And many anti-seizure meds come with nasty side effects, and that's especially true with, with other conditions like neuropathic pain. that are using marijuana for neuropathic pain to try to get off of opioids. If marijuana is being addictive, well, then opioids and benzodiazepines and a lot of other legal medications that come with them. So yes, I think definitely one important lesson for me is that you, you can't just look at THC or CBD or marijuana in isolation. You really need to think about what the alternatives are. And it may be that marijuana 
as a whole plant or THC and CBD might have some toxicity or side effects, but it may be a whole lot better than, than the other legal drugs that, that Big Pharma is selling. I wanted to talk a little bit about dosing. I've heard you say that marijuana is a pharmacological nightmare. <laughs> and I think that's because it metabolizes in everyone a bit differently, depending on your gut, maybe your weight, a host of other things. My question that I don't understand is, how is this any different from any other pharmaceutical drug, a pill that you take and is metabolized? How come I take Tylenol or I take a Vicodin or something like that, and I have an expected result and it's pretty consistent, but then with marijuana, it can be all over the place? Well, there are a couple of reasons, and I don't remember saying it's a nightmare. If I did, I was actually probably, or if I were to say it right now, what I'd be yeah. thinking is not so much about the metabolism and delayed absorption, more that a marijuana plant, you mentioned the, the entourage effect, that marijuana plants have lots of cannabinoids. We have some idea of what THC does, a little bit of a notion of what CBD does, but really no idea what most of these other molecules in marijuana does. And so kind of taking off my writing hat and, and channeling Raphael Meshulam, as I said before, as a, a biochemist, he was really very skeptical about the idea of using, at least when I talked to him, using marijuana as a medication, not because he didn't think that cannabinoids are valuable or important. If anybody were to say that, it would be him. But as a biochemist, the idea that we would just take a puff on a joint that contains dozens, if not hundreds of different molecules, keeping in mind that the next puff on the next joint might contain those molecules with very different concentrations. For somebody who's a real basic science researcher, that's just kind of nightmarish. So I think there's that, the fact that we're ingesting a lot of molecules, some of which we know what they do and some of which we don't. That's probably for me, I think, one of the great limiting factors, if you want to think about it that way, that makes yeah. me a little bit skeptical about using marijuana as a medication. Not because cannabinoids just don't work, but we just haven't figured out what the right combinations are and how to get them into people in a reliable way. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about cannabinoids. This is something else that I don't really understand. Were we aware of cannabinoids before marijuana? <laughs> I wonder because, you know, we have all these pharmaceutical drugs and it doesn't seem, and maybe I'm wrong about this, you tell me, but it doesn't seem like the, any of them are currently geared towards cannabinoid receptors in the brain right now. So is marijuana the only one that affects those? No, it's not the only one. Back in the 70s, there was a and this is all post-marijuana. I mean, marijuana has been around and used either medically or socially or some combination for, yeah. for a couple thousand years. But back in the 70s, there was a, a big push to develop synthetic cannabinoids. So um, molecules that look structurally kind of like THC or CBD or others, but with slightly different binding propensities to different receptors with slightly different effects. Sort of like you have several opioids out there, you've got morphine, you've got fentanyl, you've got methadone, with slightly different dose ranges, different side effect profiles, and so on. And there, there are lots of these synthetic cannabinoids out there. Interestingly, not many of them, to your point, have, to my knowledge, made it to clinical trials or commercial use. There are a few out there. Nabilone is probably the best one, that, the best known one that was developed in the 70s as a treatment for nausea, particularly chemotherapy-related nausea. And it seemed to work pretty well. It had less psychoactive effects, they thought, than THC did. 
that seem to be moderately effective in relieving nausea and is currently, as far as I know, still on the market today. Most of the synthetic cannabinoids that are being used, though, are probably being used illegally. These uh-huh. are, are molecules that, that make it into the so-called herbal marijuana preparations. Nobody's really sure what they do. Nobody has any idea what their side effects might be, but probably lots of people who are using herbal marijuana, so-called, are ingesting some of these cannabinoids. But recreational use in that case has gone way, way ahead of the science. Yeah. You, you also mentioned that the pharmaceutical industry catches up. The benefits of marijuana might be short-lived. Do you see that happening as they zero in on what we're really doing with cannabis? Well, I don't know. That, that might be overstating the case a little bit. It, it's, mm. it's possible. I, I think just to take a couple steps back, what got me thinking along those lines was a position paper that was released by the American Ophthalmological Association a couple of years ago. That association had endorsed marijuana as one of many treatments for glaucoma because it seemed to work well, not extremely well, but it it seemed to be effective. And some people with glaucoma who, for whatever reason, weren't responding to other drugs found it useful. But a couple of years ago, the American Ophthalmologic Association decided to stop recommending it for that reason, not because it didn't work anymore, but because other drugs had gotten so much better, better in terms of effectiveness, better in terms of side effect profile, better in terms of safety and dosing, that they didn't feel comfortable recommending marijuana anymore because other drugs had gotten so much better. Unfortunately, I think we're a long way away for at least five or 10 years away from that happening. There are still plenty of conditions like childhood seizures or nausea related to chemotherapy or neuropathic pain that the existing drugs work some of the time for some people, but there are huge gaps in what patients can expect. And until Big Pharma really develops a good set of drugs that work 99% of the time for 99% of patients, there's still going to be a need for medical marijuana in various forms that people can turn to when legal drugs fail. Well, speaking of various forms, you know, I walk into dispensaries these days and it seems like they're making everything out of marijuana with varying degrees of potency, depending on where you're eating a certain brownie or something like that. It's kind of scary, but I did want to ask you about what I'm seeing in beer and wine. I know there's companies popping up left and right that are infusing marijuana into beer and wine. And you kind of say, may not work. That may not be the best delivery mechanism for THC. Why is that? It depends. I mean, based on what I was able to sample, I have to say (laughs) that those particular makers of those bottles of beer and wine either were on the wrong track or they didn't know what they're doing. The (laughs) challenge is in order to get the active ingredients in marijuana, THC and CBD for the most part, dissolved in anything, you need to give them something that they like to dissolve in. In the book, I use the example of you have a bunch of T-shirts that have a bunch of oil on them. You can't just throw those T-shirts in a washing machine with water because you know, the oil is not going to get out of the cloth. You really need to give that oil something that the oil likes to bind to better than it likes to bind to cloth. So you throw in a bunch of laundry detergent and you wind up with clean shirts. Getting THC and CBD out of the marijuana bud is the same process. You need to give those molecules something they like to bind to. And that's either high concentrations of alcohol or lipids, fats like butter or oil, which is why most of the preparations out there use some form of either alcohol or or butter or oil heated with bud to try to get the THC and CBD out. So the chief lesson there is if you just throw a bud into a barrel of beer and let it ferment, for instance, 
you don't get alcohol concentrations that are high enough to get the THC and CBD out of the bud. However, I mean, there, there are certainly workarounds, which hopefully some makers are beginning to figure out. And one would be essentially fortified beer. So you make a really high concentration of THC or CBD in a small quantity of alcohol, like a tincture. And then you add a couple of drops of that tincture to beer or wine. And you've got something that has a reasonably concentration, reasonably high concentration of THC and CBD. So there's certainly ways to do it. I got to tell you that the beer and wine that I tried had not figured that out yet. And the <laughs> results were kind of disappointing. I've seen some of that myself. Well, we're out of time for this week. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Just Say No. Next week, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. David Cassaret. I wanted to thank him for joining us and to our producers for finding these great guests. You can download episodes of our program by going to CannabisRadio.com or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. You can follow the show on Facebook and Google+. For more information about our guests and to read more about patients using marijuana to control their symptoms and to talk to me, please go to mjwellness.com. And do yourself a favor and pick up Dr. Cassaret's new book, Stone. Join us next week when we will talk more with Dr. David Cassaret. Join us then. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.